Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to the Church Planner Podcast. Before we started today, wanted to tell you about a really special opportunity. Our friends at the Micro Church Conference put on by Brave Future, um, happening April 18th through the 20th in Kansas City. This is for all of you who are wondering what is a new kind of paradigm for missional church planting and church multiplication through smaller expressions of church, what they call rediscovering the smaller way. It's happening April 18th through the 20th. Kansas City is being hosted by Kansas City Underground. It's going to be a great weekend. And they've given us four free registrations to give away. Normally the price is $90, but we will get you into the conference for free. We have four of those. What you can do to enter is go on our Instagram at Church Planter Podcast. And there you'll find um, a, a DM button. Click that DM button. Send us a DM with your email on it and your name and where you serve. So email, name, where you serve, and you'll be entered to win one of four micro church conference registrations. You just get yourself to Kansas City and uh, you can be there and learn a ton from our friends at Brave Futures. Hope you enjoy the show today. I'm Pete Mitchell. He's Peyton Jones, and this is the Church Planner Podcast, brought to you by Church Planner Magazine. Hey, Church Planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And uh, this is actually the last of our daily podcasts that we're doing for the month of January. Today is uh, Friday, the 31st of January. So um, why don't, Peyton, you introduce our guest? Well, in in one way, we've saved the best for last. I mean, this is a subject, you know, that's dear to my heart. One of the things when we started the Church Planner podcast and Church Planner magazines, we made a promise that this would not just be like the American church planning show. And we wanted to include people from, you know, everywhere we could. We want to talk about global church planning. We want to see uh, the panoramic view of what God's doing in the world. And so our guest today is somebody who takes church planning uh, to a global level, and his name is uh, Patrick Hubbard. He's a friend of ours. He's a ministry partner of Newbreed Church Planning, uh, the network that I belong to, and uh, I'm actually on his board, and he has one of, uh, I consider, living bread, um, one of the most on-fire ministries in relation to church planning out there, and it's church planning in connection with two things right now. And uh, I believe that Patrick has some more visions cooking up. He may tell us about it. But right now, his focus is on the urban poor and church planning in connection to that. He's written for us in Church Planner Magazine and uh, very close to my wife's heart. Um, He's currently uh, spearheading uh, church planning in Thailand to uh, draw a connection between sex, sex trafficking and church planning. And I believe that uh, in both cases, God has given Patrick a strategy uh, to take things a little bit further than, than most places go. And part of that is because his philosophy is a little bit different. And so we're going to hear a little bit about um, the strategies and philosophies that, that, that he's been given um, to address these problems. And so, Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, good to be with you guys today. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, right on, man. So, you know, uh, church planning amongst the urban poor. Um, tell us uh, how that got started. Tell us a little bit of your story, a little bit of your background. And then uh, after that, um, I'll come back and ask you some more stuff. What's your story? Who's Patrick Hubbard? How did he get in this gig? Well, uh, I, I grew up in uh, in the Bible Belt, but I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And uh, but my wife, uh, my wife actually was an exchange student from Brazil. She came to my small high school and we met in high school. And right after high school, uh, I went to Brazil and, and we got married and uh, we've been married for 21 years. It's always and the we exchange actually, student, man. It's always, always the exchange. exchange student. Yeah, I won't be sending my daughters to be exchange students. <laughs> just, to, just to make that perfectly perfectly clear. I, I expected <laughs> Pete to be like living the dream. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. But we uh, we actually got saved at the same time. We uh, sh- we were at my grandmother's funeral in 1999, and uh, non-Christian family. Somehow we ended up with a Baptist preacher at the funeral, and he preached the gospel. and And we weren't even together. I was a pallbearer, but we we both responded, and and our eyes were opened, and and we came to know Christ, and and uh, our lives were you know never been the same, but. Even from that first trip to Brazil as a non-believer, I kind of got out of my uh, suburban, you know, American bubble and and saw poverty for the first time in my life, and and uh, or, or you know, at, at that level of poverty anyway. And, and even then, I, God really just broke my heart for the poor. And so, after we came to know the Lord, it, it was just a matter of time before God drew us into a ministry to to work with the poor and what we what we have found out is that there's not an organized uh church planning movement among the poor uh most uh mission agencies subscribe to what's called the three self paradigm and uh you know we can discuss the merits of that on a, another podcast but basically because of that insistence on self sufficiency um, that prevents most organizations from being able to focus in on planting churches among the very poor. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, and so there's there's a missionary, a missiologist from New, New Zealand called his name's Viv Grigg, and he uh, he was early on he was influential in 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 my understanding of mission. But he's made the comment in the past that we've uh, we have kept the living bread for the middle class and we've given some some scrap bread to the poor and the he said that in the context that we have reserved our church planning efforts for the middle class and the wealthy and we have relegated our ministry among the poor to humanitarian aid Mm. and uh and so our vision is to plant churches but to plant a church that uh is ministering in a comprehensive way uh, church that's boldly, you know, calling people to repentance and faith in Christ and making disciples, but then equipping them to be disciples, to do what, you know, to obey all that Christ has commanded and 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 see their communities transformed by the gospel. So that's kind of our story in a nutshell and, and kind of what we do. Yeah, and, and what I love about, you know, what you said there is it's the problem everywhere that the poor are forgotten. You know, in, in Galatians, when Paul's talking about when he gets his commission from Christ, he says, you know, I didn't get it from the other apostles. Uh, I got it directly from the Lord. And then he says, but I went to Jerusalem. I spent 15 days there and they, you know, laid hands on me and sent me on my way. 
saying, yeah, by all means, take the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he adds this, saying only to me, do not forget the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. And I just, there's such a strong, you know, I'll get on my rant in my soapbox, but there's such a strong connection to church planning and the poor biblically that uh, that the modern church misses. And this is what I dig about Living Bread because it's my frustration in America. I sat at a pastor's conference, Pete was with me, and I just, I, I didn't, I just started talking. Um, maybe Pete wasn't with me. Were you there, Pete, that time at the breakfast? And I just, they said, what do you do? And and I just started like opening my mouth and this shotgun blast came out about, you know, people go where the money is. And it was like, <laughs> your if, if it was a breakfast, uh, no, I was not at it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I basically just ended the breakfast conversation. It was not a happy table after that. <laughs> I just spoke my heart. And and it was just like, man, no one wants to go to Long Beach. And what was so cool is there was a couple of black guys sitting at the table and they're like, He's right, preach it, brother. You know, I was like, <laughs> you know, and, and they were they were fully, you know, these were these were guys that were ministering in the hood and he was they were like, Yeah, man, totally. No one wants to come where we're at. And uh so, you know, Patrick, I mean, that's just that is just some like I just get excited when we talk about this. Tell tell us a little bit of your philosophy, because one of the things that you stand out for in my mind is you have a unique approach. There's a lot of trends when we talk about uh, ministering to the poor internationally. There's a lot of books that have been written. Um, some of them are counterintuitive. And yet what I like about it, you're a little bit punchy on this subject. You got something to say. What's your philosophy on all this? Well, I, I think two things that really drive us is is, is the idea of interdependence. Um, and again, this kind of goes back to that self-sustaining uh, uh, paradigm that, that we've kind of imposed on church planning that's kept us from being able to really engage the poor. You know, the, the average, in, in many cases, um, we've gotten away from, we've so focused on this idea of dependency that we forget that the body of Christ is called to be interdependent. Uh, it's, it's like a living organism. And, you know, you wouldn't say that your foot is dependent upon your leg uh, or your leg is dependent upon your foot. You'd say they're interdependent. They need one another. They can't function properly without one another. And I think the body of Christ is, is, is that way. And so when we work among the poor, that's one thing that we, we don't filter everything through an economic lens. We aren't saying because we give a little bit of money they're dependent upon us when they're the ones that are the hands and feet going into the slum, ministering, risking their, their health and, and uh, well-being. They're the ones that are, are literally uh, clothing and, and caring for uh, the sick and the poor and the drug addicts. And so we see that as a kind of an interdependence. And so we really, we really promote that. Uh, and we also we want to be truly in in light of that, we want to be true partners with the uh, national uh, people that we minister to. We don't want to uh, come in and impose upon them a method or a strategy or you've got to do it this way. Uh, we want to come alongside national leaders and and help them to be catalysts for a church planning movement among the poor in their own context. And, uh, and so w one thing that we've done that really separates us is in each country that we're working in, we've gone in and set up a national NGO led com with a completely national board of directors 
Um, they share our vision. And then we work together to plant churches among the poor in that country. And, and they're raising support and casting the vision in their own country. And, and for example, about 22% of, of our operating budget in Brazil this past year has come from Brazilian individuals and churches supporting the work. Um, and that's in addition to what the church plants themselves give toward um, sustaining the work. And so there's some, some philosophies, I think, that set us, make us a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things, like, there's books like uh, When Helping Hurts, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the books where uh, it says things like, you know, you can't take money in there from another country. You know, you, you, you end up, you know, screwing them up and this and that. And, and that's really popular, like that kind of thinking. And, okay, you can take his point. You know, you, you hear that. One of the things that, that I like by you is you'll give a little bit of pushback to that. And you'll say, hey, that sounds great when you're sitting in America in your easy chair and you're in your living room over here. And that's great for ivory tower theology or sociology. But when you're on the ground there, um, things are a bit different. And uh, comment a little bit on that. Absolutely. I read a book a few years after we started Living Bread, and I was very frustrated because I was doing what I felt the Spirit was leading us to do, but I, nobody was corroborating or agreeing with what we were doing. Everything I read was like what you're saying right now. Um, and, and, and I, I stumbled upon this book as by name, guy named John Roll, and it's called To Give or Not to Give. Um, the subtitle is something about redefining sustainability. And I read that, and it was like, it was as if I could have written the book myself. He, he was yeah. saying exactly what we were, what we were feeling and what we felt the Lord was leading us to do. And it really helped us to, to kind of solidify our position. But in reality, I think the problem is not the giving of resources. Um, again, it, it goes back in North American missions back to Roland Allen. Like I think it's the early 1900s. He came up with the three self paradigm that for a church to be truly indigenous, it's got to be self-governing, self-sustaining, and I believe self-propagating. And it's that self-sustaining that has led, that's been understood as we can't give any financial resources because it promotes dependency. And as soon as we leave the thing, everything, it dies and it's, it's been a waste. Um, I would argue that it's not the giving of resources that causes that problem. It's the giving of resources with strings attached. It's when we give resources and we use them to control and manipulate the the people that we're working with. Yeah. Um, we come from a position of power and we say, okay, we've given you this money. You got to, you have to dance our tune. Um, I think that's what creates the dependency and where what we've done is we've gone in and set up that national led work. And I, and, and we've put those people in leadership. And then I, I purposefully live in the U S so that they have to lead and that they take ownership and it's their ministry and we're helping them. And uh, I, and that's helped us to avoid some of the pitfalls of dependency. It's still it's a it's a real issue, and it's something that we have to balance and and work with. But something Roll said in that book um, was we don't we don't see that it's hard, and therefore we just tighten up our hand and stop giving. Yep, that's that's the actually God, the effect that that you know books like that which have some helpful information. Don't get me wrong, but 
that has actually been the effect is that people are reading this. Now, these guys are like, you know, Yale educated, you know, they work for the National you know, Economical Center of such and such. It, it's not, these aren't guys that have actually been there on the ground church planning. And the principles mm-hmm. that, that you operate by are just plain and simple. The same exact principles that when we deal with church plants, um, we tell the sending church, hey, we need your support. That means money. That means uh, resources. We need all your support. We don't want your control. And because control is the first thing, it'll kill it. And that's the exact principle you're operating with overseas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's exactly it. A friend of mine, a Kenyan friend of mine, um, has joked in the past. He says that in his experience, the missionaries that he's dealt with have practiced the golden rule, which sounds good. But then he clarifies uh, the golden rule from his perspective is we have the gold, so we make the rules. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> And, and so we've tried to avoid that. We, from the very beginning, we've put um, nationals in leadership. And then we have, through this principle of interdependence, we've sought to um, step behind the scenes and let them lead. And so much so that in, mo- in many cases, the church plants that we've helped, they don't even know that an American organization is involved in the, the people in the community don't even know that an American organization is involved in the process. When they get fed, they're fed by the local church. When they get uh, medicine or clothing or, or classes or whatever it is, it's all done by the local church. Now, that's, um, that's a key for you. And and this is, this is what I want to kind of come around to. I know that you started in Brazil. Of course, your wife was Brazilian. So, uh, you know, for you, that whole link into the, you know, into the national people, the, the Brazilian population, that was cake for you, right? So, right. But, but one of your key uh, distinctives is you are a firm believer in church planning um, to address these issues. Many uh, things start up, you know, kind of like the, the famous quote, which is the church was Jesus's strategy for the world. It was plan A. There was never a plan B. He's not given us plan B. And you operate by that by saying, hey, uh, going into nations where poverty is huge, uh, our answer is the church, right? Same with mm-hmm. sex trafficking in Thailand. And what I want to ask you to do is give a little snapshot, give a picture of what's happening in South America uh, through Living Bread. Give us a little picture of what's happened in Thailand through Living Bread. And, and, and as you give a picture of each, address how planting churches has addressed either poverty or sex trafficking. Okay, absolutely. Well, I mean, we believe, I, we believe that, that the local church is the manifest presence of Christ in a given community. And we believe that, that by the power of the Spirit, under the, under the authority that's been given to the resurrected Christ, that he is still continuing his mission in the world through the local church. And so we, we believe that church planning in the local church has to be um, central in what, in, in what we're doing. But we realize that that there, the church is is called to uh, minister to whole people. Uh, some Latin, some several Latin American theologians that I read a lot have really influenced me in this idea of mission um, um, integral or integral mission, and it's the idea that that uh, that God created whole people and He loves whole people and He is redeeming whole people, and so it's. There's no divide between the physical and the spiritual. And so when it, from our perspective, 
when a church goes in and begins ministering in their community, their ministry should look like Jesus's look like. Um, and so we, we see the local church addressing uh, a myriad of needs. Again, we don't impose from an outside this, you need to do these programs. But when we start, when a church starts and, and the gospel begins to take root in a community and God begins to draw people to himself, well, he, he's gifted those people and they have abilities and they have passions and they have desires. And so out of that, you, you, you see kind of different, differing ministries developing. Some of our churches uh, focus on, you know, drug addiction and, and ministering to drug addicts and their families. Others are doing things with uh, uh, children and education and, and different things, but they all are doing some basic feeding ministries. Um, they're providing, last year we provided a, uh, about 14 tons of food through our church plants in Brazil, and we served about 4,700 hot meals um, through our through our various church plants in southern Brazil. And, and so they're ministering in a, in a comprehensive way. They're, they're taking the whole gospel uh, to whole people. And, uh, and, and so, for example, if you look at something, um, I'll give you one example from Brazil, and then I'll, I'll tie that to what we're talking about in Thailand. Uh, we had a, an elderly woman uh, who was a member of the church, had a massive stroke, paralyzed on one side of her body. Um, she got emergency medical care, feeding tube was put in, and she's sent home to the slum. Well, I mean, she's sent home, she's basically sent home to die. There's nobody that can take care of her. She didn't have a, a consistent ability to feed herself before. Well, now she certainly can't. And, and so she's basically sent home to die. But because she's in this local church, she's part of this local body, the body of believers begin to come around her. And with our help, the church buys the food that she needs. The church members go to her home and prepare the food and feed her through the feeding tube and give her her medicine and clean her and look after her. And for two years, they did that. And, and so that woman who otherwise would have been sent home to die with no care was cared for for two years by a local church that had been discipled that they have a responsibility to care for widows and orphans. Wow. Uh, and we're seeing, we're seeing cases where churches have take, church members have taken uh, street children in, uh, even though they can barely feed themselves, and they've taken them in, and they're caring for orphans and, and widows in that way. Well, if you, if you look at a place like Southeast Asia where— Well, Patrick, you know, before we, you get to that, I think, too, when most Americans hear of, you know, she was sent home, they're thinking of their nice U.S.-style home. But they, right. they're not, I mean, they're like dirt floors, like sheet, sheet metal walls, right? Yeah, she sent home to like a 10 by 10 shack that's built out of whatever scrap materials they could find, corrugated tin roof. And she literally slept with a broom handle in the, in, in the hand that she could move so that she could keep the rats off of herself at night. Um, I mean, she was not sent home to hospice or home health care. Without the church there, um, that woman has a very horrific end of life. Um, and, so, so when and, you say when you say like uh, members of the church are taking in kids, they're not living in like a fancy home either. They're living in the same type of home, barely able to feed themselves, and they're taking in other kids. Absolutely. And but say a mom gets arrested for dealing drugs, and the children are left with no adult supervision, you know, the people, ladies in the church will take them in and care for them until they can get back to their, back to their family. That to me is more of, um, 
that is more of a Christian attitude than we see here in the the comfort of our U.S. based churches. I mean, yep. I'm, I'm blown away by that level of love. I'm literally blown away by it. Yeah, and you know that's uh, the reality is most of what people are seeing publicly of Christians is just a bunch of anger, hate, and rage against Democrats and Obama and gays. Mm-hmm. And that that's yeah. what we communicate. And so you know the uh, the fact that that's what the church is known for. How powerful is that? It it really is. It's it's a, and it's it's of course it's a blessing for me to to experience and see. And I've learned more from them than I, than they'll probably ever learn from me. Um, but it, it really, it's a true picture of what it means um, to follow Christ. And again, if you go back to this idea of dependency, okay, we give the lady a little money for food, but she's taking in a kid that's not hers, and she's taking on uh, the sacrifice of caring for that. How how can we get into this um, the debate over who's dependent upon whom? We're mm-hmm. We're just both bringing what we have to the table in order to see that orphan taken care of in the context of a local church. Somehow uh, pleasing authors and book uh, philosophy seems less important when you're on the ground dealing with people, doesn't it? It sure does. You know, um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Thailand and your kind of fly. Because what I like about you, Patrick, is you've got, when I, when I talk to you, you, (laughs) you've got a philosophy of ministry and I always dig that because you're a guy who, again, your uh, missiology is being informed by being on the ground, not not from a book in a seminary class. Not not knocking that, you know. I mean, I'm I'm a book nerd, and I have gone to seminary and occasionally teach seminary. So uh, th- there's nothing against that. But again, I love it when missiology is from the field. You know, these are field notes. Tell us about uh, what you're doing in Thailand and your philosophy of ministry there. How will the church help in sex trafficking? Well, I think in that issue specifically, I think the the very poor are especially vulnerable when it comes to the issue of trafficking, whether it's trafficking for the purpose of forced labor or trafficking uh, for sex trafficking. We tend to focus on the latter, but the former is, is a big issue as well. Um, but the poor are especially vulnerable for that. And, and let me put it to you this way. Imagine you are a a, uh, a mother in, in a village in Southeast Asia, and you have, say, five children, and say your your youngest is, is, say, let's say 18 months old, and you don't have food, and that 18-month-old has been crying for three days, and, and you need the resources to feed that child. Well, at that point in time, it it starts to seem like a good idea to you that you would send your oldest child to, to the big city to find work. Well, when they get there, coming from the village with limited education and, and they're not, they don't understand the big city, a lot of where they end up is, is in the sex industry. Yeah. Um, and so what happens, they go into the sex industry. They now are the responsible for caring for that entire family. Well, in a culture that values a shame and honor type culture, if that person leaves that lifestyle and they leave and, and they don't have something else to go to and they leave their family high and dry and are no longer taking care of the family, that brings shame. Yeah. And so the likelihood of getting someone out of that in that in that context is extremely difficult. It's difficult in our country just 
if you just take someone who's gone into prostitution at a young age, you try to get them turned around and get them out of it. It's very difficult. Yeah. Well, my, my thought is if we go into that village and we've planted a, a Christ centered gospel centered local church that is preaching the gospel and, and, and first off kind of dealing with this issue that we're poor uh, because of something we've done in a past life. So there's no need to even try the gospel, the gospel, uh, attacks that and, and overcomes that. So then you've got people now um, who know Christ and are, and, and are striving to live for him. But if those people are discipled and, and maybe some assistance is given from the outside and so that some of their basic needs can be met, and again, not just aid, but doing development work as well and helping them for the long term, but if there's a local church that can help that mom with some basic staples of food when she needs it, then maybe that mom never comes to that point of desperation where sending the 13-year-old to the big city to find work seems like a good idea um, because the local church is able to minister in that context in a comprehensive way. And again, in the gospel, we we begin to bear one another, with the gospel, we begin to bear one another's burdens. We become our brother's keeper. And so we begin to look after one another. And so if you think another issue with trafficking, um, I've seen this in Brazil, um, where traffickers will go into a poor community and they tell the poor women that they have wealthy families in the U.S. or in Europe that want to adopt their children. And these mothers think they're making the supreme sacrifice and giving up their children so that they can go to a better life. But in reality, the trafficker is just preying on their hopelessness in order to get the child. Um, and so I think when there's a local church present and there's a body that's bearing one another's burdens, that's looking after one another, I think, I think there's a level of protection that's put in place that, that the poor typically don't have. Absolutely. Um, you're you're actually going back to the source. You know, when I was a an RN and I was training as a as an RN, um, they were just starting to talk about preventative uh, approaches to illness. You know, the government's now talking about you know if we can go back and prevent. In other words, if we can go back and control your behavior, not let you eat <laughs> McDonald's and smoke a bunch, then we can <laughs> save all these medical bills. And you know, there's a lot of sense in you know if you're fighting the symptom. You are fighting a losing battle. There's no way you're ever going to win the war. Um, if you go back and you say, look, um, if we go to the, not the, the symptoms, but the root cause of the problem, right? Prevention. Let's prevent it. So kind of like case in point, putting it in a science fiction term, it's kind of like, you know, you read these books or watch these little shows where they're like, let's go back in time and kill baby Hitler, right? Um, right. If we kill baby Hitler, then we, you know, we can't stop the Holocaust unless we go back to the root cause, eliminate him, neutralize the threat, boom. And what you're doing is you're going into a community and you are practicing prevention by going in and saying the church becomes a hub. The church gets into this community, does what it's supposed to, and therefore takes away that temptation for a family to send their young children into prostitution. There will always be orphanages like my wife worked with that uh, will deal with it on the other side. Right. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, in fact, the, the orphanage my my wife uh, was a part of, um, they actually bought the babies, um, you know, in, in rather from from the brothel, went and bought them. 
right. there's something by black market baby buying for Jesus. But here, here's the deal. What you're doing is you're, you're going even further back there. So there are different levels. Some are rescuing them out of the brothels. Some are buying the babies. But you're saying church planting actually goes to the heart of the issue and is preventative uh, even further back. It's like going back in time and killing baby Hitler. Yeah, I think so. And I think I think it's that's the case for this issue. But I would say any humanitarian issue you throw at me, I believe a a thriving gospel centered local church in that community needs to be central to the answer is the answer for that community. Yeah, um, baby, that's what I'm longer. talking about. Like <laughs> like like uh, Tidwell says on Jerry Maguire, that's what I dig about you, man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, whether it's hunger or orphan care or, uh, you know, the issue of trafficking, uh, whatever it is, if there's a if there's a gospel centered, thriving local church in that community that is making disciples, teaching people to obey all that Christ has commanded and therefore care for their neighbors. See, that's the big problem with poverty from our con- in our context. We, we think of poverty almost exclusively in, in the sense of material uh, possessions. And so, like from a government perspective, we throw money at it. Um, but in these communities, in these urban slums around the world, and and in and in our um, inner city poor communities as well, um, the biggest problem is the total breakdown of of community. Yeah, they really become an a like a Darwinian every person for themselves survival of the fittest type mindset. And so no one cares about anybody else around them because they're all just trying to survive. And so it makes them easy prey for whatever. Yeah. But when a local church comes in and the gospel begins to change people so that they start looking after one another, then that brings a level of protection to that community that, that, that nothing else, no amount of money, no, uh, you know, armed police officers or anything else can bring to that community. Well, Hey, we're, we're out of time, but, it's Patrick Hubbard. He's with Living Bread Ministries, planting churches amongst the global poor. Uh, you can go to his website, uh, www.livingbread.org. You can get involved there. You can read all about it. You can hear about his vision. You can read his blogs. He's got great stuff. You can get the newsletter. Um, you can partner with them as a ministry. You can go on mission teams. They've got a store where they've got some resources there. And you can contact him and pick his brain if you're overseas or looking to go overseas. You might want to incorporate a lot of what they've been doing for years. Uh, they've been at this for 10 years. This is their 10th year anniversary. And again, it is Living Bread Ministries, livingbread.org. Patrick, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, this has been the Church Planner Podcast reminding you if you want to reach the ones no one's reaching, you have to go where no one's going and do what nobody's doing. Thanks for joining us for another weekly episode of the Church Planner Podcast with Pete Mitchell and Peyton Jones. We'd love to hear your comments on this episode of the Church Planner Podcast. Visit us online and let us know what you thought at churchplannerpodcast.com. If you subscribe to us via iTunes and have enjoyed the podcast, leave us a positive review. The more positive reviews we receive in iTunes, the more iTunes will promote us to other church planners who would benefit from this show. This podcast is brought to you by the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the iTunes newsstand or online via churchplannermagazine.com. Music.